0: hello this is dr gary sherman the heart guy and i welcome you to another exciting and informative podcast titled the heart guy presents the heart of the matter bring you interesting discussions and conversations related to the vast and important subject of heart disease heart failure and organ donation and everything related to that in today's ever-changing world i'm extremely honored to have as my special guest today an inspiring leader in the advanced heart healthcare community dr anu lala Dr. Lala's clinical interests encompass all aspects of management of heart failure, including the selection and care of patients with mechanical circulatory support devices and heart transplantation, as well as genetic cardiomyopathies and perioperative management of high-risk cardiac surgical cases. She believes in a patient-centered approach where each individual's unique needs and preferences are essential components of developing a personalized treatment plan. Dr. Lala seeks to implement guideline-directed medical and device-based therapies, while integrating emotional and spiritual aspects of care. In addition to caring for patients, Dr. Lala serves as the director of heart failure research and is data coordinating center leader for the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute's Cardiothoracic Surgery Network. Dr. Lala also leads the fellowship program in advanced heart failure and transplant. She has authored over 75 peer-reviewed scientific publications, and is the principal investigator for a number of clinical trials in heart failure. Dr. Lala serves on local and national committees in the American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology, Heart Failure Society of America, among others, devoted to advanced heart disease. In 2016, Dr. Lala was named the American Heart Association Young Professional Society Honoree for a service and commitment to education and promoting cardiovascular health awareness. In 2020, She was recognized by the Proctor H. Harvey Teaching Award by the American College of Cardiology, which honors a promising young member of the college who has distinguished herself by dedication and skill in teaching and to stimulate continuing care in education. Oh my, you do it all. Dr. Lala, welcome to The Heart Guy Presents the Heart of the Matter. (laughs)
1: Oh, Gary, thank you so much. I'm sorry you had such a mouthful there. You could have just said (laughs) Anulala.
0: It's all right. I talk a lot. My wife always complains about how much I talk. So I'm happy to do that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for having me. What a wonderful platform you've created.
0: Thank you. Uh, Yeah, I'm happy to do it, too. I I know that we have a lot of listeners that are learning so much from our distinguished guests, and I know this is going to be great today. Uh, So interesting. But before we get started and into the wonderful things we have to discuss about success in treating heart failure, where did you grow up and what made you decide to become a doctor?
1: Ooh, starting... uh way back at the beginning. I was born and raised in the United States. I uh, grew up mainly in New Jersey. And uh, I think it all started in terms of my interest. My father is a cardiologist, and I had sort of a kind of life-changing event uh, that I witnessed when I was about 12 years old. My grandmother was visiting from India, and she actually had a heart attack in our living room one night and uh, my father recognized it immediately and she adamantly said i do not want to go to the hospital you know i this is not for me and you know the cultural norms and language barriers and that time was a little bit different that in retrospect quite frankly i can kind of maybe understand it and so my father honored her wishes and he said okay i'll I'll do my best to kind of medically manage you at home and So he brought an EKG machine home from his office, he gave her aspirin, gave her morphine, and kind of delegated tasks to each one of us at home that day. And I remember, for me, it was about holding her wrists and feeling her pulse and the strength of it. And that experience will never leave me because it's become a part of my practice now when I see patients. And there's something so um, impactful that happens inside of me when I feel a person's pulse. It's a rhythm of how their body ticks, so to speak, and you get a feel as to whether it's bounding or it's thready, whether it's regular or irregular. And I remember being very moved by that experience, although I probably didn't recognize it as such when I was a kid. Uh, And then my interest kind of just slowly developed over time. I thought I was going to end up being someone who did creative writing, and then I came back to science and biology in college, and uh, cardiology always just made the most sense to me. I feel like what I love amongst many other things is how multifaceted uh, the heart is in its function and how it performs its action, how it's the supplier of energy and blood to the rest of the body, and and really this heart-mind connection that we might talk about later on today. So uh, lots yeah, of different yeah. reasons, but cardiology just always spoke to me. And uh, it's an honor to be in this field now.
0: Yeah. It reminds me, uh, the first thing you said about that physical connection. When I had my first bout was an aortic valve replacement all the way back in 1998. My wife always took note of the way that my doctor at that time listened so carefully to my heart. He kind of rested his head on my chest to listen to my heart, and she always reminded me of that. How wonderful that seemed, and that she felt that you know such a caring way of noticing you know anything about the heart. And I'll never forget that. But it's kind of like what you you started out physically understanding, and then of course, yeah, you're right. All of those things. It's the heart is fascinating. And uh, certainly the therapies now are even more fascinating with what's going on. So I appreciate that. And, and thank you for that. This is going to be great. You've already shared with me that for you, words matter. Now, as someone who's been a student of the master's in persuasion and influence for the past 30 years, this is great because uh, I was actually thinking of renaming my disease congestive heart success. Mm. So please don't try and steal that. <laughs> In the in the spirit of people such as Dr. Bernard Lowne and others, please share with me and our listeners your heart function versus heart failure approach.
1: Yeah, thanks so much. You can sort of see here that I've changed my white coat to say the same thing as well and say heart function. I think, you know, I and others have written about this as well. And really, our Canadian colleagues are ahead of the game in that they don't call it heart failure. They call it mm-hmm. heart function clinics. And I think when you ask any person, whether they're a patient or a healthcare provider or really anyone from any background, one of the words with the most negative connotation is the word failure, right? That's what we all essentially fear innately. And to introduce yourself to someone at a time when they are most vulnerable, learning about how a disease is affecting their body and telling them that you are from the heart failure team and that their heart is failing it just sets things off on i think a completely unhelpful note if you will i think the physician patient relationship is so important in terms of how therapy is provided and the connection that you form is so integral to the treatment process really that the words we use really do matter and i think when you talk about function You can talk not only about the heart function, which is almost the smaller aspect of the word, but then how it relates to how the patient functions as a human being and what their day-to-day life is like and how problems with their heart function affect their daily functions. And so I think it has a broader connotation to it. It also opens up the possibility to allowing the patient and the physician, for that matter, to think about regaining function, to preserve function, to prevent deterioration of function. So I think it allows for an expansion of the timeline from going all the way from prevention to disease state and then perhaps recovery or replacement of function. But no matter how you slice it, it's a word that's just so much better received and it's certainly much nicer to talk about with patients. And I think it's very important to mention that by no means am I trying to downplay the decades of work that have been done in this space and the careful consideration that has gone into the description of this very complex syndrome And also, importantly, nor do I want to downplay the severity and the seriousness of this disease. But I think when you take a step back and allow for a broader discussion and more positive words, I think both patient and caregivers and physicians alike stand to benefit. Yeah.
0: And and so personally, I will tell you that I I guess I took the most common type of journey with congestive heart failure. That is, it started out as mild and actually progressed from 2015 or so to the present time. So I had a a few years where I was just being managed on medication and in my own head, I thought I was going to beat it, you know, and that positive thinking, I think, carried me through quite a few years before uh, it got to the point where. medication wasn't doing the trick. But I think you're right. I think a positive attitude and a positive mindset toward approaching the disease on the part of the provider and the patient uh, is a good thing. On the other hand, this disease generally does not get better, uh, unless I guess there's an acute problem where they can turn it around. And so it certainly worsens and, and doesn't improve. So I think doctors still try to motivate their patients by saying heart failure, Uh, to try and get them to do the right things to try and uh, turn it around so not everybody has necessarily bought into this yet i don't think
1: no not not at all and i think it's about striking that right balance like you said where you're informing patients as to how serious the condition is to allow for engagement compliance interest but also not to leave people feeling hopeless Yeah. And I would say that with certain therapies in certain patients, we can really see very dramatic recovery of not only function, but really symptoms, which also falls under that umbrella of function in general, as I was alluding to earlier, with how do you function as a human being, given yeah. the function of your heart.
0: Yeah, yeah, I know, and that's true you know, um, I think a lot of people misunderstand congestive heart failure as being death of the heart, of course, and that's not what it is. So, and, but it's tough to change the name of things. I think that's a challenge in, in this country. Uh, we would have to change the name of congestive heart failure or something else. I don't know how easily that's done, but uh, you know, any way that could be done is probably, as you suggest, a good idea at this point and get, get rid of the word failure. And and it's true for me. I, I'm I'm still going and I had it and I hope to have many years of of life. So uh, there is hope for many of us.
1: Yeah, indeed. I mean, if people can be functioning like you are, then that's, you know, (laughs) that's pretty amazing. And I think, you know, this, this concept of words mattering, it's a broader concept, right? It it applies to so many aspects of care and how we approach patients. And we talk about patients who are sometimes non-adherent or non-compliant, right? but that's such an oversimplification of what might be going on. You know, maybe they couldn't take their meds because they couldn't afford them. or maybe they couldn't take their meds because there was an illness in the family and there was something going on, you know, so I think along those lines, being careful with how we choose our words to describe a situation is a a broader thing that we should all keep in mind, you know, if we talk more about what are the barriers to adherence, what are the challenges with adherence, you know, so it's a little bit of a tangent, but I think this concept of Paying attention to how we communicate and how our words impact patients is a helpful thing.
0: And also, I was going to say listening. So if you you know say to the patient as a doctor, it seems that you're having trouble with your medication. They yeah. then will talk to you about what those barriers are. So if you're open to listening to those things, you can elicit those things through strategic em- empathy, really. Uh, in, yeah, in that that's thing. such a
1: great That's such a great comment. I'm actually going to use that next
0: time. I like that a lot. Well, so I was a a supervisor for New York State contact tracing for COVID-19 last year while the pandemic was at its height. I had to teach my uh, contact tracers how to de-escalate, if you will, the people who were resistant to doing the right thing, to quarantining and such. And I taught them to use phrases like, it seems like you have a lot of challenge with the kid's home. And it would start a conversation. And in starting that right. conversation, what the, what it would do is it would create trust, and once they had right. trust, the person on the other end of the line was more likely to comply with the request we were making for them to stay home. So you have to create that trust first before you can ask your request, and and in doing so, yeah. So if you can say it seems like, it looks like, it feels like, and let them go from there, you're letting them tell their story, which they often want to do.
1: Absolutely, I think that openness. Also inherently shows empathy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and when you can understand a little bit about the other person, rather than just being trapped in your role as physician and you are patient, but rather we're both human beings, Mm -hmm. um, I think the connection that's afforded is a stronger one. That's based, like you said, in trust, and then. Things can move from there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's a fascinating part of the whole thing. And that's all about language. It's all about really the way you use your words. And
1: yeah. I have a number of
0: And they're not really tricks. They're techniques. I call them techniques because we're not trying to trick anybody. But there are things that you can say that trigger the mind to respond in a certain way favorably so that they can benefit from what it is you're trying to get them to do. It's, it's fascinating, too uh, that, that part of it. Let's, um, just shift for a minute and talk about a very cutting edge topic, which is the mind body connection and approaches such as mindfulness based stress reduction and things of that nature. So the mind body connection, which I've been pretty much the poster child for, uh, because, you know, positive thinking, our thoughts and feelings and beliefs and attitudes have positively affected the way that I've been able to function in the face of of heart failure. But are these things real or is it are there proof is there proof that there actually is a physical advantage f- to have a positive
1: attitude? Right. Oh, I'm so glad you asked that. Thank you. And I think you are right. You are a direct example of <laughs> when you said are these things real, I would just say like, you know, look in a mirror <laughs> because you know, you're kind of Thanks. an example of how it is real. And I think where we get caught up is in the actual scientific assessment of that connection which is just so challenging to capture but for the first time actually this past year the american heart association released a statement on the mind body connection as a a scientific statement coming from our well-established cardiovascular society so it was so heartwarming (laughs) for lack of a better term to see that to see that recognition And I think, you know, if you if we're looking for proof, so to speak, well, there are certainly studies that show that deep breathing and yoga and exercise and things like that do improve outcomes. Certainly, rehabilitation has been shown to improve outcomes amongst heart failure patients or patients living with heart failure. But if you think about it, when you're scared, what is the first feeling that you feel? You know, if you take a minute to tune in, you feel your heart pounding, right? You feel that tightness in your chest and you feel your heart pounding and you feel your heart racing and it how does that happen why does that happen well it all starts with a thought and where is that thought that thought is in your mind and so that is just such a simple direct manifestation of that connection that's just so innate and so inherent in us that we take it for granted and so i really believe that the more we focus on that connection the more we focus on mental, emotional, and spiritual wellness, the more we're going to see positive effects of that in our physical health as well. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, my dream one day will be that we have the support and resources to be able to recommend therapy and spiritual practices and mindful-based practices, the way we prescribe medicines. Because I truly believe that it all goes hand in hand. I can speak for myself. Like I know how I feel when I exercise or when I do yoga or when I take some time to do meditation. I'm in a completely different space mentally, and I physically feel Mm -hmm. better because of it as well. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Oh, so interesting. Thank you for that. Through my involvement as an ambassador with the American Heart Association, they speak often at AHA about our why. So in terms of our motivation to be involved, American Heart Association. How does this extend? Uh, do you think to a patient's why as it influences individual therapies and even positive outcomes for heart failure patients? From what you have seen?
1: Yeah, thank you so much. You asked, you know, all the questions that mean so much to me. It's funny um, in preparing a video for this honor that I had at the Young Professional Society in the American Heart Association in 2016, we had to prepare a video on ourselves and they asked me that. And I had been involved with the AHA for a while, both as a fellow society here in the greater area of New York and then later on as I became an attending. And so I was very familiar with the what is your why. slogan but quite frankly I never I never directly applied it to myself and in having to prepare this video about me they asked me only to prepare comments on what my why was and why it was my why I remember so distinctly I was pregnant with my son at the time and very pregnant at that And I remember feeling so stumped by that question. I said, my goodness, Mm -hmm. this is such a simple question. I've heard it so many times. But when it comes to answering it for myself, wow, I, I, I was having some difficulty articulating it. And then I realized how deep and profound of a question it was. That's you know? right.
0: It seems corny, but it's not corny at all, right? No, it's, it's, it's yeah. I think yeah. that
1: that is it, right? It's kind of like, what is your raison d'être, right? What is mm-hmm. what makes you tick? You know, I'm yeah. using all my corny cardiology jokes. No, but that's right. But for me, I I thought and I meditated a lot on that question, and I said, wow, my why is feeling joy, and what makes me yeah. feel joyful? Well. They're, they're the personal aspects of my life that make me feel joyful. My children, my husband, my family, my parents, my brother, you know, every my, my friends. There is inner joy that comes from spending time being with myself in those moments of self-reflection and meditation and just even if it's just a, you know, active workout, a run, an Orange Theory session or something like that, so that's that's joy. And then there's the joy of being of some sort of service to other people, right? And so all of those combined form my my why. And what I've learned and why I think your question is so relevant is for me to be an effective physician, to care for patients, I need to understand their why. Particularly in this advanced heart function space where they are, you know, much like you've encountered, on a precipice in some sorts where mm-hmm. if LVAD, you have an LVAD, but that might not be the right therapy for everyone. So unless, mm-hmm. you know, for you, I'm just meeting you now, but clearly you have so much to give and so much to share. And your why, mm-hmm. I'm sure that plays into your why, is giving back and expanding mm-hmm. and, and using your platform to be a voice for others. And so if if I were evaluating you, for example, for an LVAD or a transplant, if I understood that about you, then I would say, yes, absolutely, this is this therapy can afford that why, you know. Right. Whereas if you told me, listen, I'm a deep dive swimmer, <laughs> you know, and that's my why, that's the thing that I derive most joy from, well then an LVAD <laughs> not the right thing for you, right? Wow. And yeah, so definitely not <laughs> I know that sounds like an oversimplification, and it is to some extent. But really understanding what brings a person joy and inner satisfaction is really important in being able to guide what kinds of therapeutic options will yield potentially the most personalized result.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, it depends on experience too, because I'll tell you, I'll share this with you that before the pandemic, we were having those support meetings up at my hospital for people who've had LVADs or heart transplant surgeries. And the people who are younger are having a much more difficult time accepting the bad mm-hmm. uh, for a number of reasons. And for me, you know, I already had an f- extraordinary life and I have wonderful kids and I've traveled the world and all that. But for younger people, they, they wonder, will somebody want to marry me if I have a cable coming out of my stomach? Or will I be able to work in the way that I like with... 10 pounds of batteries and so they have other things that kind of get in the way of their appreciation of the fact that this device is keeping them alive right so there was that that i that was that became very clear to me Mm. and interesting and i was trying to motivate them and and show them hey listen i don't have the same life but i have made this a good life uh, even though it's going to be a different life right and i can't go swimming but i can do a lot of other things now i golf pretty well so there's other things i can do still uh, with this device and, and it's helping me to live many years and I can see my family and all that. So, yeah, I, I try as hard as I can to share those messages, but um, not everybody is ready to be able to, to do that, I think.
1: Right, and I, I think, think the,
0: the battle is hard.
1: Yeah, I, I, I totally appreciate that and I'm so glad that you're a part of that support group. I think not by any means am I saying that I would not offer those options to people based on what my interpretation of their why is. But it does enable you to contextualize where a particular therapy might fit for a patient. You know, I I have a a young, lovely uh, gentleman who was just transplanted. He's 38 and he was able to celebrate Father's Day at home with his young two boys after being in the hospital for months and months and experiencing Mm -hmm. cardiac arrest, etc., And now, you know, he's facing his own challenges. Thank God he's doing well from a physical standpoint. But there's a lot of psychological and emotional and spiritual, I don't want to say trauma, but there are challenges that come with this. And I think we as a community just need to recognize that they're equally important to deal with.
0: Yeah, a little like PTSD, I guess, in yeah, a sense. Yeah, kind of. Um, yeah.
1: You know, he's a young man. He's got young boys. He wants to go back to work. Yeah. It's He's amidst the pandemic. He's immunocompromised. Yeah. What does that mean for him? Can he see people? Yeah. If his kids are sick, what does he do? Does he leave the home? You know, like things like this, it's an ongoing lifelong journey, you know, and I think my
0: friend, I was going to say, I wanted to share with you my friend, Valen Kiefer, if you ever see her, you can check her out on online because she's everywhere. Valen Kiefer, she's a big advocate for organ donation, but she's had double kidney transplant already and a liver transplant so so when she emerged from the liver transplant in 2017 all of a sudden she felt normal and good and great and all of a sudden the pandemic hit like right on the heels of her emerging from that you know she thought okay now i can live great and she wasn't able to do that and she's finding a way through especially through her her selflessness um, and her advocacy work she's she's just wonderful but yeah it's like it's it's always you always have to try to fight through these little battles and and certainly everybody's fighting through the the pandemic.
1: Right. I'm sorry. I know I'm going sort of a little bit rogue, but I have a question for you, actually.
0: Oh, thank you. Oh, sure.
1: Because, um, you know, what you were saying is how there are bumps along the road, there are challenges. And I think what helps is always bringing things down to the present moment. Right. Like you like you were describing to these young folks in the LVAD support group. Whereas what are you able to do right now? Appreciate things that are working. And then with when you're very present like that, then I think there's a little bit more room for acceptance. And when you accept then and you allow what is, then I think it opens room for opportunities to flow in. And so I guess my question for you is, how did acceptance play a role in your journey with heart failure?
0: Well, you can, so, so the answer I think is simple. I, can, I realized after, and I had an extraordinarily difficult time recovering initially. I, I had been through, especially in January 2019, I had three operations to save my life. I had two aborted heart transplants. I had an aortic dissection repair, and I had the LVAD placed all in a period of three weeks. Wow. And I was in ECMO for three weeks. Wow. And then so that coming out of that was difficult because I had to learn to walk again and all this stuff. And so it was extraordinarily difficult. And I still I, I also had the effects of the drugs that I had been on for close to two months in the hospital. And then um, I had a breakthrough. I realized that you we, we can't control what happens to us. Right. The world is random. But we we can control the way what we do with that. Right? right. So we can react either negatively or positively to whatever it is. And we have that choice that we have control over. Right. So we don't control what happens to us, but we do control how we react. Yeah. And so I decided to be happy with it. You know, I could have been unhappy with the LVAD or I could be happy and find a way to make it work for me. It opened up two and a half years of sharing my thoughts on my podcast and my writing and all the things that I'm, I look forward to each day. I can't wait to meet somebody new like you. And I met such extraordinary people because I got the LPAT. Yeah. That's
1: so beautiful. And so that's so beautiful. Right. <laughs> well, it's
0: true. I mean, it's just simple. I'm not, you know, my my wife's friends, they say, well, is he on medication or what? Why is he happy? He's got- <laughs> yeah, I
1: want some of what you have. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, I had a couple of dentist friends who asked me how to get an LVAD because they wanted to stop working during the pandemic. <laughs> it was so challenging. I said, there's better ways to retire than get this thing. But, you know, it's just what you do with it. It's, you know. It's just what you do with it. But that's, and that's exactly the answer, that's I
1: exactly right, right? So when you align yourself with what is uh, and you accept what is, it allows you for recognizing allows you to recognize the opportunities that lie in that given situation. And and you're yeah. you know a perfect example of that.
0: It's an embarrassment of riches for me because I'm embarrassed to say, and I know that what how people suffered this year. I do, of course, I do. But for me, it's been extraordinary. i I've, I've met so many wonderful people and learned so much about all these processes and all the wonderful things we're doing in therapies to help people stay alive. I, I don't know. I, I look forward to each step. I realize the next step for me will be a little tough for a few weeks, but I'll just fight through that and then come out with some, some more stories. And that's how I see it. Yeah. I'm already looking ahead to, you know, what's going to happen in the fall when I when I'm out of the hospital and I'll go to the World Series in, in, in Milwaukee where I'm going. <laughs> so, right.
1: I love uh, that.
0: That's how I think, you know. Yeah. Uh, But anyway, so um, transplantation as a manifestation of oneness of humanity. So as I do, I I think, um, is there a chance that our living through this pandemic has strengthened our tendency uh, to act toward this notion of oneness? I I think, you know, I kind of feel that way. How do you feel about that? And I just want to say that I I came across a wonderful TED Talk by a lady named Emily S. Fani uh, Smith. I don't know if you saw that one. Mm. Um, And she talks about um, going after meaningfulness mm. instead of happiness, really, that that's really what the essence of her talk was about, because a lot of people chase happiness. And when they do that, they end up being depressed and unhappy. Um, but if you go for meaningfulness in your life, like doing things for other people, for example, um, you end up being more happy. Uh, I love um, that. So, I, yeah, I, I wonder, I think in the, in, in the face of the pandemic, I think many people have learned that. Do would you are you seeing that?
1: I love that. I, you know, I think it kind of is along the lines of your why, right? Um, Yeah. And I think that requires some self-reflection. I think this pandemic has afforded time for self-reflection for sure. And I do think that there is a lot of recognition of oneness and that we are in this together. And it also is incredibly humbling, you know, in many ways. The reason, and you know, this is the reason I talked about oneness and one, what drew me to advanced heart failure and transplantation was this manifestation of oneness so I grew up in a in a Hindu household and mm-hmm. um, one of the underlying tenets of Vedanta which is the, the crux of Hindu philosophy is is ultimately what lives in you lives in me and we are, one. You know, it's the same mm-hmm. life force that allows us to be having this conversation. Of course the right. the personality and the exterior, those are just kind of superficial coverings. And it's one thing to talk about this and it's another thing to actually realize it. You know, I think that's the the goal is to really truly be able to recognize yourself in another but there are two things that i'd like to say and follow up to that is one when you try and put yourself in your patient's shoes and kind of approach things from more of an empathic perspective that oneness is just any in your conversation so i think that's one and the other thing is is that transplantation in particular, for me, I'll never forget my first transplant run uh, as a fellow in Boston. It was a person who had been waiting in hospital for months, in fact, and the donor was of a different race and a different gender and a different cultural background. But nonetheless, the recipient woke up the next day alive, you know, with the strong heartbeat. And I said, and I remember staring at that surgery and watching the old diseased heart go out and this new strong relatively healthy heart go in and I said my goodness you know it's all the same on the inside it really really is and it's so simple and it sounds so cliche but if if that's not a direct manifestation of oneness then I don't know what is and I think that's what yeah one thing I love so much about this field, and it's one thing, you know, thank you for the gift of being able to talk about this, because when we remind ourselves of this, then it, it's helpful, because in our day-to-day lives, it's so easy, so, so easy to forget. Yeah,
0: um, and, and thank you for this conversation. Uh, I, I'm, I'm upset because it has to end, but we can actually do another one. Maybe after I emerge from my surgery, we'll get together again. So I'll just finish with, um, I, I gave a talk just before, or just as the pandemic was beginning, at the Northwell Heart Failures Therapies Conference, as I was actually like the elephant man. I was, I was supposed to be a Exhibit A, the LVAD patient, right? <laughs> but I, I surprised them by not speaking about my aches and pains. Rather, I spoke about what really makes a good doctor and a good nurse. And, and I felt that you know from the perspective of the patient, when the doctors and nurses include the patients in the conversation, and uh, about their therapy and and make them feel important in those ways. I I really think that really makes the difference and makes them the good doctor and the good nurse is certainly in the mind of the patient. So do do you feel that there is an important uh, aspect to uh, the doctors connecting with their patients in that way?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. I think there's a couple of things. One is including the patient in the conversation, in decision-making, however small it may be. You know, it's so easy for us to go into the room and say, hey, we're gonna give you more of a diuretic today. (laughs) See you tomorrow, you'll be peeing all night, you know? I'm sure you've heard that many, many times, but rather approach it with, I think the body is retaining some fluid and we need to get rid of it. And one way we could do that is by giving you another dose of the diuretic. And I know it's gonna mean that you're gonna be up all night Should we maybe dose it at this time versus that time and sort of engage the patient to be a part of that decision making process? And I can't say I do that all the time. I wish I did it even more than I do. Mm -hmm. But I try to make that effort because I believe that empowering patients empower the treatment process. So I think that's one aspect of it. I think so. I absolutely agree to your point. Another thing I think that is, is helpful is being on the same level. Physically, so I hate when the patient's lying down in bed and we stand like a bunch of doctors and nurses over the bed Mm. I like being at eye level if possible. So I'll oftentimes like sit in bed with the patient (laughs) I know that's not kosher during COVID (laughs) times to talk like this, but even if it's grabbing a chair, Trying to be on that same level is, I think, really helpful. Sometimes I'm known for even just like squatting on the floor and just (laughs) being able to talk to them at eye level. And then the last part of it, even though COVID times make this challenging, is that physical connection, that touch, the holding of the hand, the feeling of the pulse. Mm -hmm. I I think that those things make real inherent differences in how we communicate with each other. Mm -hmm. And honestly, on a selfish note, it's more rewarding for me too. Wow.
0: Oh, so interesting. Yeah. And then it circled back to the guy who was leaning on my chest to listen to my heart. Yeah. Yeah. It's the same kind of thing. Um, This has been such a great honor to have you as my guest on The Heart Guy Presents the Heart of the Matter. And on behalf of myself and our listeners, I thank you so much for sharing your refreshing, positive approach to all you've done for our community, both locally and for the global community with your incredible dedication to your work and for sharing this time with us. I hope we can do it again soon.
1: I do too. I wish you the very best. Thank you for being a voice of encouragement and positivity in general. And thank you for inviting me on this platform. Oh,
0: that no, certainly my pleasure. This was great. Uh, I could go on forever, but you got to get back to your patients. So me too. Me too. <laughs> That is our podcast for today. Please join me next time for another intriguing, informative, and entertaining conversations. Please visit our website at www.drheart2heart.net for upcoming podcasts, or if you'd like me to host an online presentation for your group or organization. If you'd like to be a guest on The Heart Guy Presents The Heart of the Matter podcast, please email me at theheartguyspeaks at gmail.com. Our podcast can be found on Apple iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, Spotify, And um, all you have to do is search it. The Heart Guy presents the heart of the matter. Until next time, this is Dr. Gary Sherman, The Heart Guy, wishing you peace and hope.